A Note on Realism by Robert Louis Stevenson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Style is the invariable mark of any master, and for the student who does not aspire so high as to be numbered with the giants, it is still the one quality in which he may improve himself at will. Passion, wisdom, creative force, the power of mystery or color, are allotted in the hour of birth, and can be neither learned nor simulated. But the just and dexterous use of what qualities we have, the proportion of one part to another and to the whole, the elision of the useless, the accentuation of the important, and the preservation of a uniform character from end to end, these, which taken together constitute technical perfection, are to some degree within the reach of industry and intellectual courage. What to put in and what to leave out. Whether some particular fact be organically necessary or purely ornamental. Whether, if it be purely ornamental, it may not weaken or obscure the general design. And finally, whether, if we decide to use it, we should do so grossly and notably, or in some conventional disguise, are questions of plastic style continually re-arising. And the sphinx that patrols the highways of executive art has no more unanswerable riddle to propound. In literature, from which I must draw my instances, the great change of the past century has been effected by the admission of detail. It was inaugurated by the romantic Scott, and at length by the semi-romantic Balzac, and his more or less wholly unromantic followers bound like a duty on the novelist. For some time it signified and expressed a more ample contemplation of the conditions of man's life, but it has recently, at least in France, fallen into a merely technical and decorative stage, which it is perhaps still too harsh to call survival. With a movement of alarm, the wiser or more timid begin to fall a little back from these extremities. They begin to aspire after a more naked narrative articulation, after the succinct, the dignified, and the poetic, and as a means to this, after a general lightening of this baggage of detail. After Scott, we beheld the starveling story once in the hands of Voltaire, as abstract as a parable, begin to be pampered upon facts. The introduction of these details developed a particular ability of hand, and that ability, childishly indulged, has led to the works that now amaze us on a railway journey. A man of the unquestionable force of Monsieur Zola spends himself on technical successes. To afford a popular flavor and attract the mob, 
he adds a steady current of what I may be allowed to call the rancid. That is exciting to the moralist. But what more particularly interests the artist is this tendency of the extreme of detail, when followed as a principle, to degenerate into mere faux de joie of literary tricking. The other day, even Monsieur Daudet was to be heard babbling of audible colors and visible sounds. This odd suicide of one branch of the realists may serve to remind us of the fact which underlies a very dusty conflict of the critics. All representative art, which can be said to live, is both realistic and ideal and the realism about which we quarrel is a matter purely of externals. It is no especial cultus of nature and veracity, but a mere whim of veering fashion that has made us turn our back upon the larger, more various, and more romantic art of yore. A photographic exactitude in dialogue is now the exclusive fashion, but even in the ablest hands it tells us no more, I think it even tells us less, than Moliere, wielding his artificial medium, has told to us into all time of Alceste or Organ, Dorine or Crissel. The historical novel is forgotten. Yet truth to the conditions of man's nature and the conditions of man's life the truth of literary art, is free of the ages. It may be told us in a carpet comedy, in a novel of adventure, or a fairy tale. The scene may be pitched in London, on the seacoast of Bohemia, or away on the mountains of Beulah. And by an odd and luminous accident, if there is any page of literature calculated to awake the envy of Monsieur Zola, it must be that Troilus and Cressida, which Shakespeare, in a spasm of unmanly anger with the world, grafted on the heroic story of the Siege of Troy. This question of realism, let it then be clearly understood, regards not in the least degree the fundamental truth, but only the technical method of a work of art. Be as ideal or as abstract as you please, you will be nonetheless veracious. But if you be weak, you run the risk of being tedious and inexpressive. And if you be very strong and honest, you may chance upon a masterpiece. A work of art is first cloudily conceived in the mind. During the period of gestation, it stands more clearly forward from these swaddling mists, puts on expressive lineaments, and becomes at length that most faultless, but also, alas, that incommunicable product of the human mind, a perfected design. On the approach to execution, all is changed. The artist must now step down, don his working clothes, and become the artisan. He now resolutely commits his airy conception, his delicate aerial, to the touch of matter. He must decide, almost in a breath, the scale, the style, the spirit, 
and the particularity of execution of his whole design. The engendering idea of some works is stylistic. A technical preoccupation stands them instead of some robuster principle of life, and with these the execution is but play for the stylistic problem is resolved beforehand and all large originality of treatment willfully foregone. Such are the verses intricately designed which we have learnt to admire with a certain smiling admiration at the hands of Mr. Lang and Mr. Dobson. Such, too, are those canvases where dexterity or even breadth of plastic style takes the place of pictorial nobility of design. So it may be remarked it was easier to begin to write Esmond than Vanity Fair, since in the first the style was dictated by the nature of the plan, and Thackeray, a man probably of some indolence of mind, enjoyed and got good profit of this economy of effort. But the case is exceptional. Usually in all works of art that have been conceived from within outwards and generously nourished from the author's mind, the moment in which he begins to execute is one of extreme perplexity and strain. Artists of indifferent energy and an imperfect devotion to their own ideal make this ungrateful effort once for all, and, having formed a style, adhere to it through life. But those of a higher order cannot rest content with a process which, as they continue to employ it, must infallibly degenerate towards the academic and the cut and dry. Every fresh work in which they embark is the signal for a fresh engagement of the whole forces of their mind, and the changing views which accompany the growth of their experience are marked by still more sweeping alterations in the manner of their art, so that criticism loves to dwell upon and distinguish the varying periods of a Raphael, a Shakespeare, or a Beethoven. It is then, first of all, at this initial and decisive moment when execution is begun, and thenceforth only in a less degree, that the ideal and the real do indeed, like good and evil angels, contend for the direction of the work. Marble, paint, and language. The pen, the needle, and the brush. All have their grossnesses, their ineffable impotences, their hours, if I may so express myself, of insubordination. It is the work, and it is a great part of the delight of any artist to contend with these unruly tools, and now by brute energy, now by witty expedient, to drive and coax them to effect his will. Given these means, so laughably inadequate, and given the interest, the intensity, and the multiplicity of the actual sensation whose effect he is to render with their aid, the artist has one main and necessary resource which he must, in every case and upon any theory, employ. He must, that is, suppress much and omit more. 
he must omit what is tedious or irrelevant and suppress what is tedious and necessary. But such facts as, in regard to the main design, subserve a variety of purposes, he will perforce and eagerly retain. And it is the mark of the very highest order of creative art to be woven exclusively of such. There, any fact that is registered is contrived a double or a treble debt to pay, and is at once an ornament in its place and a pillar in the main design. Nothing would find room in such a picture that did not serve at once to complete the composition, to accentuate the scheme of color, to distinguish the planes of distance, and to strike the note of the selected sentiment. Nothing would be allowed in such a story that did not at the same time expedite the progress of the fable, build up the characters, and strike home the moral or the philosophical design. But this is unattainable. As a rule, so far from building the fabric of our works exclusively with these, we are thrown into a rapture if we think we can muster a dozen or a score of them to be the plums of our confection. And hence, in order that the canvas may be filled or the story proceed from point to point, other details must be admitted. They must be admitted, alas, upon a doubtful title. Many without marriage robes. Thus any work of art, as it proceeds towards completion too often, I had almost written always, loses in force and poignancy of main design. Our little air is swamped and dwarfed among hardly relevant orchestration. Our little passionate story drowns in a deep sea of descriptive eloquence or slipshod talk. But again, we are rather more tempted to admit those particulars which we know we can describe, and hence those most of all which, having been described very often, have grown to be conventionally treated in the practice of our art. These we choose, as the mason chooses the acanthus to adorn his capital, because they come naturally to the accustomed hand. The old stock incidents and accessories tricks of workmanship and schemes of composition, all being admirably good or they would long have been forgotten, haunt and tempt our fancy, offer us ready-made but not perfectly appropriate solutions for any problem that arises, and wean us from the study of nature and the uncompromising practice of art. To struggle, to face nature, to find fresh solutions, and give expression to facts which have not yet been adequately or not yet elegantly expressed, is to run a little upon the danger of extreme self-love. Difficulty sets a high price upon achievement, and the artist may easily fall into the error of the French naturalists and consider any fact as welcome to admission if it be the ground of brilliant handiwork, or again into the error of the modern landscape painter, who is apt to think that difficulty overcome and science well displayed can take the place of what is, after all, 
the one excuse and breath of art, charm. A little further, and he will regard charm in the light of an unworthy sacrifice to prettiness and the omission of a tedious passage as an infidelity to art. We have now the matter of this difference before us. The idealist, his eye singly fixed upon the greater outlines, loves rather to fill up the interval with detail of the conventional order, briefly touched, soberly suppressed in tone, courting neglect. But the realist, with a fine intemperance, will not suffer the presence of anything so dead as a convention. He shall have all fiery, all hot-pressed from nature, all charactered and notable, seizing the eye. The style that befits either of these extremes, once chosen, brings with it its necessary disabilities and dangers. The immediate danger of the realist is to sacrifice the beauty and significance of the whole to local dexterity, or in the insane pursuit of completion to immolate his readers under facts, but he comes in the last resort, and as his energy declines, to discard all design, abjure all choice, and with scientific thoroughness steadily to communicate matter which is not worth learning. The danger of the idealist is, of course, to become merely null and lose all grip of fact, particularity, or passion. We talk of bad and good. Everything indeed is good which is conceived with honesty and executed with communicative ardor. But though on neither side is dogmatism fitting, and though in every case the artist must decide for himself, and decide afresh and yet afresh for each succeeding work and new creation, yet one thing may be generally said, that we of the last quarter of the nineteenth century, breathing as we do the intellectual atmosphere of our age, are more apt to err upon the side of realism than to sin in quest of the ideal. Upon that theory it may be well to watch and correct our own decisions, always holding back the hand from the least appearance of irrelevant dexterity and resolutely fixed to begin no work that is not philosophical, passionate, dignified, happily mirthful, or at the last and least, romantic in design. End of a Note on Realism by Robert Louis Stevenson Read by Quaker Woodworker